Welcome to the 5-7 Podcast. I'm your host, Pri, and today we are joined with uh, Katie Bolt, who is a dietitian. How are you doing, Katie? I'm doing great. How are you? Great, great. So, um, so uh, could you please give me an introduction of yourself? Yes, of course. Thanks for having me, by the way. This is my very first podcast interview. So I've done TV interviews, and I think I've done one radio. So thank you very much. This is kind of fun for me. <laughs> um, like you said, I'm Katie Bolte. I am originally from Nebraska, southeast Nebraska, born and raised there. Um, went to college, did my bachelor's and master's in dietetic internship at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and um, met my husband there. And then we moved to Chicago, well, the suburbs of Chicago, um, with his job in 2015. And then last summer, we recently just moved to Maryland. So we've kind of been able to experience food and nutrition and those environments in different parts of the, the U.S., which has been kind of fun for me and him. We both call ourselves foodies. Um, <laughs> but I'm a wife. I'm a mom to two, pregnant with number three, due in June. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And food, nutrition, and exercise are my life. They have been since college. Um, and recently, as becoming a mom, like the last three, four years, I've gotten more into prenatal nutrition a little bit, but mostly like, um, you can call it pediatric nutrition, but more just getting kids to like foods, try new foods and how families can incorporate different foods. And especially with picky eaters, how they can help introduce healthy foods. So a little bit about me. Yeah. Yeah. How would you say, uh, diets are different between Nebraska, Chicago, and Maryland? Um, well, of course, we all have our staples. So Nebraska, we think of literally a big chunk of steak or beef on the plate with some mashed potatoes and corn. Um, you pretty much ask anybody, definitely like my parents' generation or older, like that would be their good quality home comfort food. Um, I think we've gotten a little bit away from that, I, I would say. But I'll also tell you, my three brothers who are younger than me would still go for that meal any day of the week. <laughs> um, Chicago is definitely a much more food culture. So it's really cool because I know the city of Chicago, they have all the food and wine festivals and things. Um, but even in the suburbs, it's still very Midwest to me. So people still like their protein, their starch, and a vegetable as their dinner, where which is great. But there's other foods you can incorporate on the plate to just get in more nutrients per meal. Um, and East Coast, a little bit more... I would say seafood focused, but of course it depends on the time of the year. Like we have crab year round here, which is not something that, I mean, you saw it on the menu in the Midwest, but not often. I definitely did not grow up eating crab in Nebraska. Um, but they do a lot, at least here in the wintertime, I've seen a lot of soups. So, which is not uncommon for Midwest either, but I was kind of surprised by that because it doesn't get cold here as it does in the Midwest. So. Yeah, I love soup. Uh, it's uh, I think it's more of like a comfort thing, like when it's really cold. Yeah. And I'll, I can definitely always go for soup. So what is um, what exactly? What's the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist? So a dietitian, um, you have to do what's called a dietetic internship. Um, internship is almost like a misnomer because. It is usually anywhere from like a six-month program to a 12-month program at an accredited university or an establishment where you have to go through certain requirements. So there's a clinical component and a community component, <clears throat> excuse me, and a food service component, and you have to meet certain criteria. And after you go through this internship process, you have to take a national exam and pass the national exam to be a registered dietitian. Now, a nutritionist, just the name nutritionist, um, you could, for example, Google what is nutrition or what are carbohydrates and you could read up on that and call yourself a nutritionist. So nutritionist is a very broad spectrum and there are different nutrition certifications out there through different, um, they call themselves accrediting bodies, which, which some are like some are nationally accredited, but some are more just nutrition certifications just so some people can say that they're a nutritionist as opposed to being an actually 
um, planned, supervised, and accredited program like the dietetic internship. Okay. So when going to college, like say for instance, you know, you're in high school, have you always been, uh, you know, conscious about, you know, the, the type of food that you're getting and, you know, your protein intake, carb intake, stuff like that? Or is that something that you kind of just came into uh, when you decided this is what you wanted to do? Yeah, absolutely not, actually. Um, I mean, I liked food growing up, but no lie, I ate Rice Krispies as lunch in high school more than I didn't. I will tell you, it was a huge bowl of Rice Krispies because um, we got to go home for lunch. We didn't have to stay on campus. Oh, but wow. it wasn't until college. I was actually set on going the exercise route. So exercise has always been – exercise and physical activity have always been a huge part of my life. So in my freshman year of college, it was actually the very first semester, there's just, just gen ed class that all nutrition and exercise majors have to take. And it was one of the very first classes where the instructor, who became an awesome mentor for me, was like, you know, if you're thinking about going the exercise route, it's really hard not to talk about nutrition at the same time. Because think about it, like you're doing personal training with a client. You can only do so much exercise-wise to help them meet their goals before they hit a plateau, before they can't. But your scope of practice when it comes to nutrition as a personal trainer is very limited. You have a little bit of scope, but it's very general nutrition information as opposed to getting into, okay, what are you eating at each meal? What are we missing? Look at team. Um, so literally in that class, I had a light bulb moment. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to do the exercise route, why wouldn't I do nutrition? Because I know I want to stay exercise or I know I want to do something with exercise as a career. Um, and those majors overlapped a lot. So it was easy for me to do a double major. So I actually switched and did that, did the double major. And then nutrition kind of took the forefront because yes, you can make money as a personal trainer and as a fitness instructor, but you definitely have to find that niche. And in the Midwest, there's not a whole lot of niches necessarily where you can make a whole lot of money, um, or at least that I was interested in, I should say. So I did become a certified personal trainer in college. Um, so I've been a certified personal trainer. Now the credential, because I have the bachelor's, is called exercise physiologist with ACSM since 2009. And I've been a certified group exercise instructor since 2008. So I've definitely stayed with the exercise and have done a variety of things with that. Um, but nutrition has definitely been more of the career path where exercise has always been more of the fun component for me, where I just teach the fitness classes and help um, people get interested in fitness and exercising. It seems like, um, especially recently, I would say maybe like the past five years that um, fitness and nutrition have have been coming, um, you know, kind of um, kind of like a one thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's getting to a point where, you know, we can't talk about fitness without talking about your diet right? or, or nutrition, you know, because back, back when I was in, in, uh, in high school, you know, it was like, hey, you want to get strong, so what do you do? You eat, you take a lot of protein and you take creatine and you eat a lot and you carb up and that's it. That's all that it was, you know. Nowadays, you know, it's, you know, there's very refined diets uh, towards getting to these goals and um, and I think that it's really really interesting because you know you learn stuff you learn something new every day you know especially when it comes to diet. So is there like a big lifestyle change when you you know like in college like was there like a point where you're like you know what I have to as as you're learning more about your diet and nutrition that you're like oh my god I can't eat this anymore I can't do this I can't do this like what point was that for you? Um, I can't say there was ever really one like aha moment for me where I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm really going to put this into practice with nutrition, but it was applying like just basic healthy eating principles that we were learning in our nutrition class. So, you know, going to a dining hall as a freshman, you pretty much can pick anything and everything. You can eat chicken strips and fries every single day of your life if you want <laughs> to, right? Um, but they also have a great salad bar, at least the university in Nebraska had a great salad bar and, you know, awesome steamed vegetable options and fruit options and things. So, I grew up eating different fruits and vegetables, but like I said, in the Midwest, it's more like you have your protein, a starch, and a vegetable. Well, why can't you have fruit and dairy at dinner time too or that evening meal? That's not something I grew up with. So that was something that I slowly changed and incorporated um, just, just from lack of – or just from gaining that knowledge, I guess. Um, 
also for me, I'm somebody where, you know, I would go teach a fitness class at 7 a.m. and I wouldn't get back to my dorm room or my sorority house till nine o'clock. So I'm somebody who would have snacks all the time in my bag because I, you know, you'd get lunch or meals, but you'd just always be snacking. So it was also choosing snacks that would help me stay fuller longer, but also give me more nutrients. So sometimes I would have to resort to a snicker bar, but honestly, snicker bars are better than some of the quote unquote nutrition bars out there. <laughs> so wow. yeah, it's, it's just interesting when you really look at the nutrients, um, what they can actually provide the body for what reason or for certain reasons, I guess. So, so who do you turn into when you don't have your Snickers bar then? Oh man, I get hangry. <laughs> you can definitely ask my husband. I get hangry real fast. Yeah, I do too. So, I'm definitely somebody where I love to eat the three meals a day and I eat anywhere from two to four snacks a day. Okay. Because that's just, that's just how my metabolism and my body functions best. Okay. So, so let's talk, let's talk about carbohydrates. What are, what exactly are carbohydrates and what are good and bad carbohydrates? Okay. So first, one of my big rules, I'm also a nutrition instructor at a university in Illinois. Um, so one of actually the first things I tell my students who are anywhere from freshmen to senior level students, just getting a nutrition gen ed out of the way is that there's no such thing as a good or bad food. And same with nutrients. Um, We like to label things good and bad because it's easy to keep them separated. But again, it's more looking at what can these foods or nutrients do for your body? And how much does your body actually need? That's where we get the not so good for us versus healthy for us. So for carbohydrates, they are one of our three main macronutrients, meaning We need them in larger amounts than vitamins and minerals. Those are our micronutrients. So carbohydrates, they're um, organic compounds made of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen to get really chemical or chemistry focused. But you can pretty much divide them into sugars, starches, and fibers. So we could go on and on about each of those individual groups. But essentially, they're found in almost every food in a certain percentage, Um, fruits, vegetables, dairy, legumes like beans, nuts, and grains. So pretty much every food except for protein sources, like just basic protein sources. Um, But one of the things that carbohydrates, um, I guess their primary source, which is one of the reasons why I try to help my students understand why there's no such thing as a good and bad carb, is because carbs are the primary energy source for the body. So your brain absolutely wants carbohydrates and carbohydrates in food get broken down to what we call glucose. So if you've heard of blood glucose or blood sugar, that blood glucose glucose is actually what your body is using as energy. It's converting it to energy and even your brain. So when we deprive the body of carbohydrates, we actually can struggle mentally because our brain is not getting the fuel that it needs. Okay. So I was under the, I was under the, I was under the impression like say like uh, say like good carbohydrates, uh, you know, like uh, you know the perceived look at uh, good and bad carbohydrates. Like say white bread is a is supposedly a bad carbohydrate, and um, I'm trying to think of a good one. Uh, I'm just drawing a blank in my head. But there, uh, apparently, the body is supposed to break them down differently, isn't it? Yeah. So this gets into how fast the body can metabolize certain carbohydrates because of how complex their chemical structures are. So you're right. White bread will digest faster. And so you digest it. You can absorb that glucose faster. So typically you see a sharp rise in your blood sugar faster Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to even a whole wheat bread that's made of whole grain oats, whole grain rye, whatever it may be. Excuse me. Um, That, because it's a whole grain, It has all of the four parts of the seeds, including fiber. That is digested slower, so you don't see a large spike in the blood sugar. Now, the large spike in the blood sugar for most people means that you get like this short kind of energy high, so you'll kind of experience it like within 30 minutes after a meal, and then all of a sudden you'll feel drowsy or just really sluggish. So a lot of times, excuse me, that happens like after people eat a large meal of pasta, Because for us, 
we see pasta as the main dish, right? That's the main food in a pasta dish. We might have three or four meatballs on top. Maybe there you have a side salad with it, but really you're eating a whole lot of pasta. Well, that's going to digest really fast in the body, causing our blood sugar to go up and come back down pretty quick. And therefore, that energy isn't sustained for a long period of time. As opposed to even a whole grain pasta that's digested slower. So you don't get that high spike and that quick low. So you don't feel that sluggish or that drowsy effect, you know, 30 to one hour after you eat or even up to two hours after you eat. You feel like, okay, I ate a meal and it's actually like sustained me. It's satisfied me. Right. Okay. So whole gra- you, you would suggest uh, people eat whole grain pasta then? Yeah. Anything that has whole grains in it. Um, it's recommended to get at least 48 grams of whole grains. And there's an awesome whole grain council website that people can go to to see what the stamp looks like because it's on a lot of products. But you want to find the words whole grain or whole as the first ingredient on the label. So literally you could walk to your kitchen now, check your breads, check your um, rice even. Brown rice is a whole grain. You could check rices. You could check your cereals, crackers, any of that. And you want to look for whole grain on the box. Now, food marketing is awesome. Haha. ha. Um, they're full <laughs> of all sorts of tricks for us. So you have to be careful, though, because um, there are some products that are marketed as whole grains or they promote in big, bright letters on the front of their box that they have so many grams of whole grains. Well, you still want to flip it over and look at the ingredients facts label because whole grains may be the third ingredient, not the first ingredient. I was actually doing a supermarket tour one time, and I had, to, I had to put my foot in my mouth because I like the wheat Ritz crackers. Well, on the front of the box, it says there's five grams of whole grains in it. Whole grains is not the first ingredient in wheat Ritz crackers, just to let you know. But wheat thins and Triscuits, those have whole grains as the first ingredient. Hmm. So, yeah, I was kind of – I made a fool of myself that day, but I have <laughs> never forgotten it. Lesson learned. Now, I don't want to get into uh... – uh, diets today. Uh, I think, you know, maybe we can do another podcast and we can get in into specifics about diets and how I think that they're garbage. But, um, you know, there are diets out there that are saying, you know, that you need to, um, you need to limit your, your carbs, your carbohydrates. And I've always thought that's a bad thing because it's, it's limiting yourself of, of, of of your fuel during the day. What do you, what do you think of that? So I would agree with you for the most part. Um, when there's ever a diet plan um, that tells you to either eliminate or severely reduce an entire nutrient, macronutrient, like carbohydrates, or if they tell you to eliminate an entire food group, it definitely sparks a red flag because um, – Yes, there are some people whose bodies function better with maybe less carbohydrates than you and I need, but sometimes not to the point that some of the fad diets out there are telling them to get to. So there is extensive research giving acceptable like nutrient ranges for the, for the macronutrients, so for carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. So what most adult, individual, and even kids, what we need in our day for our bodies to thrive and to function properly. Um, A lot of these fad diets, they don't have the research or conclusive research um, to back up the findings or their sayings that, oh, um, with the keto diet, you should have 80% of your nutrients from fat, meaning you should have very, very few carbohydrates, which yes, can work for some people in their goals. And yes, is needed for some diseases like epilepsy. The ketogenic diet is used to help treat epilepsy. But is it meant for people everywhere? No. In my opinion, no, it is not. Because it's asking you to pretty much eliminate the entire, almost all of your carbohydrates, which like I said before, is your brain's primary source of fuel and the rest of your body. So whenever there's a diet that's saying eliminate that whole food group, Unless it's for a medical reason and you're under medical supervision or you're consulting with a dietitian, I would definitely proceed with caution and have that red flag come up and either go find a registered dietitian um, or go consult with the doctor who can either point you in the right direction of valid resources or to a registered dietitian who can give you more information. Because one of the risks is you also um, 
deprive your body of certain vitamins and minerals that most people don't even realize are in certain foods. So by eliminating one thing, you can actually hurt your body in many other small ways that you don't even realize. Okay. And uh, so what about proteins? We'll get into proteins and, yeah. and fats and sugar. So what, are, what exactly are proteins and, and how do they, what do they do for your body? Um, proteins are awesome. In my opinion, <laughs> all food is awesome. Really? It has its place, but proteins, they're another macronutrient. So they give us energy. Um, they are the building blocks of body tissue. So I think of proteins as Legos, right? Everybody knows what a Lego is. Sure. And each of those little Legos, if you're building a tower straight up and down, each of those Legos represents an amino acid. So proteins are made up of these little molecules called amino acids. And amino acids do different functions in the body and are part of um, repairing body tissue, building body tissue, um, regulating body functions like your metabolism and hormone production. But the amino acids can also provide energy if needed. There are, excuse me, I'm sorry, there are 20 different amino acids and nine of them are considered essential, meaning our bodies can't manufacture them. So we have to get them from a food source. Um, there are certain food sources, like most animal proteins, that have all nine or close to all nine essential amino acids. So, for example, an egg. Eggs sometimes get a bad rap for their cholesterol. We can get into that later. But they contain all nine essential amino acids in one little egg. That's only 60 calories and six grams of protein. So each, each, egg, each egg is six grams of protein? Wow. Yeah. So it's a great way to start the day. Yeah, it is. And what about fats? So fats are a little bit more complex than proteins. Um, they are a third macronutrient, so they give us energy. Fats are more complex because they are a more dense form of energy. So I'm, I'm going to get more technical here for a second. Let's Sorry, do it. I hope I don't talk too fast. But carbohydrates and proteins, they give us four calories per gram. So if you look on a nutrition facts label and you see, or like an egg, you see that it has six grams of protein, you're like, okay, that's great. I know I need so many grams of protein, but how many calories are those six grams of protein giving you? So you can take the six grams times four calories per gram. You know that you're getting 24 calories from just that protein alone in an egg. So carbohydrates are the same, four calories per gram. Now, fats, they are more energy dense. They are nine calories per gram, which is why people get scared of the word fats in food because they're like, oh, it's going to have too many calories if it's not low fat or fat free. Well, in the 90s, we had an awesome low fat, fat free craze. So everything is <laughs> fat, fat free. But in the process, these wonderful fats called trans fats also came into play. Um, not just in the 90s. It was earlier than the 90s. But... There are certain fats in foods that do that are healthy for us, and there are certain fats that we need to limit. The trans fats, they were manufactured to increase shelf life of food. So since they were manufactured, our body actually doesn't know how to recognize them and to process them appropriately. So they actually increase our risk of heart disease. And um, yeah. so would margarine be an, an example of trans fats? Um, they were, however, I believe it was in 2015, there was a law passed that all foods, all foods had to have zero trans fats by originally it was 2018, but I believe it might've gotten extended just past that for major, like huge manufacturers. But as far as I know, as of the end of 2018, almost all foods are trans fat free now. You cannot have it in the products. Okay. Yes, margarine at one time did have trans fats um, because it made the product more stable. But it was all it was in all kinds of foods, even Girl Scout cookies. My husband and I were just talking about Girl Scout cookies upstairs. There was trans fats in Girl Scout cookies because it would increase the shelf life of them. Um, but not just Girl Scout cookies. I'm not I'm not dogging on those. <laughs> but in a lot of processed foods, they use trans fats because they were cheaper, and again, they could increase that shelf life. So. <clears throat> that was the problem, though, is that people are, have started to migrate more towards processed foods instead of just real whole foods. So they were getting in too much trans fats. And again, our body didn't know how to process it. So trans fats, 
if we're going to label something as good or bad, trans fat would be bad because it is not something that is naturally found in food. But now we don't have to worry about it. It's out of, it's out of production. Now, the healthy fats, going to flip back to what we want to focus on. Um, the healthy fats are what we call unsaturated fatty acids. I'm not going to get into the chemistry of that, but there are more and more nutrition facts labels that are specifying the unsaturated fats in foods. So the unsaturated fats are found in foods like nuts and seeds and oils, like canola oil and olive oil. So these are actually heart healthy. They can help clear out the bad cholesterol and the excess fats that's excess fats that are circulating in the blood, which is what we want. Um, if you've ever heard of things like omega-3s and omega-6s that are high in fish, those would be examples of unsaturated fatty acids too. So on a nutrition facts label, you might see it smelled up, spelled out as monounsaturated, excuse me, monounsaturated fatty acids and polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, another way to shorten it up is to call them MUFAs and PUFAs. My students always get a little chuckle out of that because it just sounds funny. <laughs> but those are the fats we want to focus on. So nuts, seeds, and oils, and also fish are rich in unsaturated fatty acids. Now, the saturated fats, which you are definitely going to find on almost every single nutrition labels, or you should, um, those are typically found more in animal products. Like, excuse me, they are going to be found in animal products. And saturated fats are the ones that recent research um, is showing has kind of gotten more of a bad rap than it should, but we're not quite sure what to make of it completely. Now that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but nutrition science as a whole is a relatively new science compared to things like chemistry and biology, right? Like nutrition science is just over a hundred years old. So people get really frustrated with nutrition science because they're like, well, one day eggs are good. The next day they're bad. Well, yeah, because we're literally like the technology is, you know, improving and we are looking deeper and deeper into the literally the molecular structure of foods and how they interact with the body. So saturated fats is one of those things now that is definitely under the microscope by a lot of researchers. And they're trying to figure out if the recommended levels we have right now are too strict or not strict enough. And genetics can play a part in how, how your body reacts to saturated fatty acids and like your heart health. But Essentially, we are getting too much saturated fatty acids, so eating too many animal products, and not enough nutrients to help clear that from the body. So the nutrients that can help clear that from the body, for example, would be like fiber and our unsaturated fatty acids. So where we're going to get fiber, those whole grains, and definitely the fruits and the vegetables. So going back to that Midwest way of eating, where you have the big chunk of beef on your plate and the starch and maybe a vegetable, there should be much more vegetable on that plate as opposed to the big chunk of steak mm. to help clear out that saturated fatty acids. Now, there are very lean cuts of beef out there and poultry, and we have, of course, fish. Fish might have a tiny, tiny little amount of saturated fats. But the problem is the way that we eat and how our culture eats, we don't get typically a balanced amount of food at each meal to help those nutrients work together, to make mm. the ones that can be negative, um, to keep them under control, if that makes sense. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so. It's it seems that, uh, you know, everybody wants the cowboy cut steak, you know, a baked potato, and yeah. maybe like three three pieces of asparagus, you know? Yeah. And yes. and the the vegetable there should be much more vegetables on the plate, yes. much much more uh, broccoli maybe. Yeah, <laughs> great vegetable, great vegetable. <laughs> so, um, okay, so with all of this going on, you know, there's a segment of people that, you know, they're they're um, allergic or they have an allergy to to gluten, yes. and and where does where does that fit in? What exactly does it mean uh, to gluten? Like, what is it? Okay. So gluten is actually a protein found in certain grains. And it's going to be found in wheat, barley, and rye. Now, that gets confusing because wheat, barley, and rye can be processed in so many different ways and put in so many different types of foods that you wouldn't even realize it's there. 
like different condiments, excuse me, and even different seasoning blends. They can have a very small amount of wheat, barley, or rye, but if they have that gluten protein in there, for certain populations, that can be very, very bad for them. The certain population would be people with celiac disease. So celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder where literally your body attacks itself. So if it senses gluten in the digestive system, it's going to alert the immune system and there's going to be antibodies sent to your intestines that don't attack the gluten. They actually attack the cells of the intestines. So people get really bad side effects. So they have swelling in their intestines. They have um, maybe a, a lot of cramping. They might have gas, constipation. They feel sick. Some people even throw up. And I'm literally talking, some people with celiac disease, if they eat a crumb that uh-huh. has in it, yeah, it can, it can trigger a reaction. It can trigger an autoimmune reaction. And it's not something to be taken lightly with somebody who has celiac disease. Now, some people are more severe than others. Like I, I literally know a gentleman who he didn't actually develop celiac disease. So after he was 50 years old, but he was one where if he had a crumb of, of bread, his wife had told me it was an example. Um, he had put his bread in a toaster, his gluten-free bread in a toaster that had regular bread in it or gluten containing bread and some of the crumbs cross-contaminated and he was sick for two days just wow. because his, just because it came in contact with gluten. Now, there's other people where it's not quite that um, major, but there are also people who have what's called non-gluten, uh, no, excuse me, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So this is one um, disorder that is still being investigated because it's more on a spectrum. So people can have what feels like an autoimmune reaction, but it's not. You don't have the autoimmune response, but you do get negative side effects. So you might have the constipation, the cramping, the bloating and things like that, but it's not actually your body attacking itself. It's something different. Um, Now, these are also both separate than just food allergies in general. So this could be, I mean, a whole talk in and of itself because food allergies, again, it's an autoimmune response. But celiac disease is different from just uh, another food allergy in the way that your body responds. So gluten, for most of the population, is harmless. But for those specific specific disease and disorder populations, it can be very harmful to their digestive system because once that inflammation and reaction happens, specifically in celiac disease patients, then their actual absorption of their other essential nutrients is affected. So it's just all bad spiral effect. Sure. And then that completely throws your life upside down. I had some issues. Um, I went gluten-free and that that really helped out. Um, that really helped me out. I don't think I'm allergic to, to celiacs. I think I'm the other one that yeah. isn't allergic but has some of the side effects. Yeah. And uh, so like, I have to watch you know, what I eat because sometimes if I, have, um, if I have something that has a lot of wheat in it, I like I will feel it, you know, a few hours afterwards and I'll start getting bloated. I feel tired, really lazy, you know, and and it's it's terrible. Yeah. So uh, there are people who are just more sensitive to even wheat, like the gluten found in wheat, as opposed to the gluten in barley or rye. Okay. that might be because there's more products that we consume with just wheat as opposed to the other two. Um, But also like the portion size. You know, if you were to eat two pieces of bread at breakfast with the rest of your breakfast, as opposed to just one or half a slice, like for some people, that can be a huge difference between having the side effects and not having any side effects. Right. The sensitivity is definitely something that's needs more research because the spectrum right now is super broad. Yeah. And it seems like wheat and corn, you know, it's like everything is made from corn and wheat. Mm-hmm. And you know, I thought I read something somewhere that in Europe they don't have a, a gluten problem because I think they process uh, they process wheat differently than that we do here in America. Hmm, that I don't know. I would have to look into that. I'll find. You know, I'll try and find that, and, I, and I'll I'll try and forward it to you. It's pretty interesting. Hmm. So, um, what would you say are commonly uh, foods that are commonly bad, but people think are okay? Um. 
I try to think of some examples earlier. Um, one would be grains. Honestly, carbohydrates or grains as a whole, they definitely in the last five, ten years have gotten more um, of a negative connotation with them, unfortunately, when there's a lot of awesome nutrients that come from grains. But two problems are, well, one of the major problem with grains is we can't control our portion size. Mm. We don't. Like that's just our food culture. Yeah. And like I said before with the pasta, like we see an Italian dinner as literally an entire plate of pasta. Which is true. If you go, go to Italy, you will get served an entire plate of pasta. But that is usually just one course of their meal, and their protein is served separate with their vegetables and things. Whereas us, the pasta is the meal. If you do not have an entire plate of pasta, that is not a full meal. When really that's not how we should look at it. So, Or even our bagels. <laughs> Think of the last time you went into um, any kind of bakery that sold bagels. Or you can get them from the grocery store. They're a pretty big size. It's a pretty generous size. They're more. huge. Yeah. So it's the portion size more that is the problem for people as opposed to just the grains itself. So if you can be smarter about your portion size and incorporate other foods when you're eating grains, then <clears throat> excuse me, you won't feel like um, – some people feel like they gain weight easier when they eat grains. Well – Yes and no. You have a bigger portion size, but also sometimes your body can hold more water to process those foods, depending on what they are. So you might actually just be holding on to a little bit more water weight that day because you ate more pasta. There's all kinds of reasons. Um, but grains, they have essential B vitamins, which we absolutely need, and they're an excellent source of fiber, which your digestive system definitely needs, especially to help keep those things like blood cholesterol and those other blood lipids down. And in check. Um, also, eggs. I've mentioned them a couple times. They don't get so such a bad rap anymore. Um, I think people have come to terms with the research is, is very here or there still. There are people who are sensitive to the cholesterol in eggs, meaning if they eat eggs so many times a week that they see their blood cholesterol rise. But then there's a lot of people in the population where they can eat eggs every single day and their dietary cholesterol remains in the normal healthy range. Um, I'm a big fan of eggs because like I said, they have the nine essential amino acids. They give you that six grams of protein and that 60 calories. So they can be a quick and easy breakfast, a quick and easy snack. So I would go for those. Um, a random one I thought of, which depending on probably where you're at in the U S, um, may not get a bad rap or people don't think about it, but sometimes avocados, um, because they are so calorie dense. So avocados are actually a great source of healthy fats. They have those unsaturated fats in them. But with that, there are a whole lot of calories, especially for a fruit. So it scares people. But really, they have those unsaturated fats. They're full of fiber, full of folate, vitamin K. They actually have over 20 vitamins and minerals in them. Um, so avocados can actually be a great addition to your meal. But again, portion control. I'm somebody who can sit down and eat two cups of guacamole and not even bat an eye <laughs> because I love it. So I don't really need that much guacamole. Um, but I, I can put a whole avocado on a sandwich too if I wanted to. Um, they, have a lot of, they have a lot of potassium in them, don't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're, they're full. They're really very nutrient-rich across the board. But sometimes people get scared of them. Yeah, I've read that uh, potassium is actually a really good for people who suffer from anxiety because it helps uh, – potassium helps uh, stave off anxiety attacks. Yeah. What are some foods that are commonly thought of as good but are actually bad? So the one that sticks out in my head right now because it's it's been a trend in the last five to seven years are oils from tropical plants. So, for example, coconut oil. Um I know when I was a practicing dietitian, a consulting dietitian in Lincoln, Nebraska, I had clients come in and say that they got rid of their canola oil, their olive oil, whatever oil they had in their kitchen, and they're only using coconut oil now. And not only are they using it in all their cooking, but they're adding it to their smoothies. They're adding it to their breads. They're doing everything with coconut oil. Um, I believe that everything fits in moderation. So there are definitely certain cuisines and certain meals that you make that are not the same if you do not use coconut oil. For example, curries. 
right? If you do not have the coconut oil or the coconut milk in there, it's not going to have the same flavor. It's not going to have the same texture. It's totally going to change the dish. But if you are just sauteing down some vegetables, you can use that canola oil, which is healthier in the unsaturated or has more unsaturated fatty acids than coconut oil. So coconut oil is actually, even though it's not an animal food, it's very heavy on the saturated fats. Mm. So when people use it in place of canola oil and olive oil for everything, they're actually increasing their saturated fat intake and they might not even realize that. So olive oil has a lot of saturated fat in it? Olive oil has the unsaturated. Okay. 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 Yes, the canola canola and the olive oil. Yes, I know. <laughs> canola and the olive oil have the unsaturated fats. Okay. And I'm not saying that coconut oil doesn't have its place because it does. But there are definitely people who are who love the coconut oil so much that they just use it for literally everything. Yeah. So what would you say a well-balanced diet looks like? Um, you, you're getting all those food groups in. Every food has its place and in moderation, which is the hardest part for people, including myself. Um, but I, I like to use the my plate. I don't know if you're familiar with my plate. I've never heard of it. Okay. Do you remember the food guide pyramid? Yeah. Okay. So the food guide pyramid was replaced back in 2007, I believe by a diagram called my plate. So okay. it's literally a plate and it's portioned out. So you have a quarter of the plate vegetables, a quarter of the plate fruit, a quarter of the plate protein, a quarter of the plate grains, and then you have dairy off to the side. Now, that makes it a really easy concept to pretty much show everybody, whether it's a four-year-old or my 85-year-old grandma, right? Like people can see, okay, I eat off a plate every day. Here's how much food of each food group I should have on my plate every day. Well, it's a great concept, but it's really hard to apply to every meal. So think of the last time you ate all five food groups at each meal, right? Most people are like, mm, didn't, <laughs> haven't for a while, right? Like does, you have to make, Does yeah. chocolate count? <laughs> you can make a conscious effort to get all five food groups in. So I still like to use it, though, because you can see what food groups you're getting and then find out where you can fill in the gaps with snacks. Okay, so what I say well-balanced diet looks like is you eat, shoot for three out of five food groups at breakfast and four out of five food groups at lunch and dinner, and then you use snacks to fill in the gaps. So most of the time, like at breakfast, people tend to have maybe a grain and a dairy and fruit. So let's say... Yogurt with some granola and some berries, right? So you know that you're missing maybe another source of protein, even though yogurt has a little protein, some protein and some vegetables. So maybe at snack time, you can have, <coughs> excuse me, some nuts and cheese and, or excuse me, those are both protein. You can have, let's do cheese and celery or cheese and cucumbers, and you can get some protein from the cheese and you can get in a vegetable. Or you could add more vegetables to your lunch or your dinner. So that way you can work with the five food groups, but people are, can better apply it into their daily life and see where they have those missing gaps to fill in and still shoot for getting those fruits and vegetables at every meal, hopefully. Um, in a perfect world, I would want everybody to at least have half of their plates, fruits and vegetables. Wow. Okay. So that means uh, you know maybe less of the... Uh, quote-unquote main course? Yes. Yes. So what we think of as the main course, as the protein and the starch or the grains, um, I say starch because people think of rice, pasta, potatoes, mm. Mm. Um, corn, all of those is like the same food group. Yeah. When really, they're not. <laughs> the potatoes and the corn are actually vegetables. But they're still starchy how people, they're just their nutrient component. But yeah, half your plates, fruits and vegetables, for sure at lunch and dinner time. And then a moderate portion of protein and a moderate portion of those whole grains. And then also some low-fat dairy on the side. Now, I know as adults that it is not common for people to have, like, a glass of milk at mealtime. They serve their kids milk at lunch and dinner. But for the adult to actually drink milk, 
is not very common. At least it wasn't in the Midwest. Um, and it's still something like for me, I don't do all the time. I give my kids milk for every single meal. I'm lucky if I drink it at breakfast time, but we need that calcium just as much as the kids do that you get from the dairy. So having a glass of milk, maybe at dinner time, not only do you get some of those nutrients that we definitely still need, but it has protein. It has a little bit of fat. So it'll help satisfy you longer. So you don't feel like you need to eat a huge portion of food on your plate because you're eating some foods that have some really good nutrients in them for you. Now, uh, instead of saying, um, you know, I've, I've actually heard, I've actually heard that people don't have enough dairy in their, in their, Mm -hmm. their diets. Would you say that maybe having a glass of milk in the evening instead of having it with your meal would work out? Oh yeah, totally. You could even have it like one of my favorite actually post-workout snacks is chocolate milk. (laughs) Now sports nutrition is a whole nother subject, but it's like an ideal ratio of protein to carbohydrates. Um, if you're working hard enough in your workout, like to need that, that nutrient replacement, but really chocolate milk is an excellent post-exercise, um, choice, but having a glass of milk at bedtime or, um, or right before bed, or even as a snack, it's awesome. Even a container of yogurt, like that can help people meet their dairy needs, their calcium needs, um, throughout the day. And it's a great healthy snack too. Yeah. I normally have, uh, we can get into just a, just a quick question. I normally have a, um, in the morning I'm usually pretty groggy. So if I, if before I run or before I work out, if I work out in the morning, I will have a bowl of oatmeal. Uh, actually I'll first, I'll drink 16 ounces of water and then I'll have a bowl of oatmeal and, um, and some Oikos or Chobani and Greek yogurt. Yeah. And then I'll have uh, a small orange halo. Mm-hmm. And I, I typically don't have a lot of sugar in my diet. So when I have, when I have one, I get like this huge spike, you know, in, in energy. And then I go out and I, and I do my workout and that's typically in the morning. But if I work out in the afternoon or the evening, I'll do it after I have like a big meal, like say pasta or, um, or, you know, or just like a typical meal of like, you know, salmon and, potatoes and and uh, zucchini for instance and and then I'll I'll go and work out kind of like a it's kind of like my pre-workout kind of drink cuz I don't like to take those you know like pre-workout drinks because right. I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in them that you know that we don't need so I try to keep it as natural as possible right is there any would you say is there any um benefit to using fruit as kind of a you know, motivator or a, like a spike in sugar for, before your workout. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's easily digestible. So when you look at carbohydrates, the, the carbohydrates in fruit, they are essentially sugar, right? We, a lot of people just think of carbohydrates as sugar. Right. Carbohydrates are more complex than that, but in most fruit, they have sugars and fibers, as their carbohydrate sources, but that sugar can be broken down really fast. So you do get that rise in blood glucose because it's digested and absorbed so quickly. And so, yeah, that can help you get moving. It can give you that wake up energy feel, um, to get you going. So having fruit, even as an afternoon snack, whether you're working out or not, but when you're feeling groggy, you know, like at that, between that two and four o'clock time, you're like, am I going to make it to dinner or I need to wake up? Do I need to go get more caffeine? That kind of feeling. Try having some fruit because it can give you a similar wake-up effect, but you're also getting all those nutrients from the fruit that you're getting. And fruit is high in water, so it can be a hydration source. And you're also, <clears throat> excuse me, getting that fiber. So even though some of those sugars are digested quick to give you those ener- that energy, it's also going to help you feel fuller so you're not munching on everything in sight to get you to dinner time. What fruits would you typically suggest for uh, for dinner? Um, are we talking before workout or just in general? Um, let's do in general. Okay. Literally anything. Um, what I try to do in my house is I try to have at least four different types of fresh fruits available at all times. And then I also have things like applesauce and then canned pears and mandarin oranges and things for more of a quick and convenience um, option for the kids for like lunch, but I try to give them a different fruit at each meal. Now, sometimes 
like today, I need to go to the grocery store. So they did get some grapes at breakfast and at dinner time. But I gave them, I don't even know what they were. I think, yeah, they had oranges. They had the little halo oranges at lunchtime. So to be honest, I don't think there is a right or a wrong fruit to have at a specific time of day. But just so long as you're getting in a variety, because each fruit has its own awesome set of vitamins and minerals and fiber contents and all of that, um, you can get a variety of nutrients in, in just the fruits and vegetables alone in your day. So go for variety. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, that was, uh, that was great. That was very informative. Um, yeah, we're definitely, uh, we're definitely going to do this again (laughs) because, uh, I mean, it's like, you know, when it comes to this stuff, you know, it's like, uh, no, there's just so much. You know, and uh, and there's a lot of information that people, you know, they they just don't have. You know, if you ask somebody, you know, do you know that this is this, or do you know that, you know, you're having two starches, you know, or having too much starch? Like, oh no, it's just, you know, it's just what I eat. You know, when I'm really groggy, and I'm really tired. You know, and and it's like, well, it's probably your your sugars, you know, out of whack. You know, and like, oh yeah, I'll I'll have a. You know, I'll have a Snickers, you know, <laughs> and it's like, let's, yeah. <laughs> let's not, let's not rely on Snickers for everything. Right. But, um, but, you know, I would really uh, like to, appre- I, I really appreciate your time. I'd really like to thank you. And uh, is there any, uh, do you have any social media accounts? Do you have a website where people can, you know, get a, get a hold of you or, or find you on social media? Yeah. Well, I am on Facebook. This is my name, Katie Bolte. Um, I am on Pinterest and I am on Instagram. And I can get you those handles if it's easier just to post. Um, but right now I'm actually in the process of starting up a mom, well, a stroller-based fitness class here in Maryland mm-hmm. because that was something I taught in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, and they don't have anything like that here. So I will have hopefully more information on a website and where you can find <laughs> me in the very near future. Okay. I'm just finalizing a logo for that now. So Excellent. Excellent. Well, hey. Uh, Once again, thanks for coming on the 57 podcast and, uh, you know, take it easy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.